Hi FM, 101.9 megahertz of life. I'm very pleased to have as my guest today a colleague, a very distinguished colleague, head of policy research at the Institute of Race Relations, Dr. Anthea Jeffrey. Uh, Anthea, welcome to the IRR show. Morning, Sarah, and thank you very much. I am going to discuss with you, uh, I, th- I think, what is in a, a very, very important um, labor of love piece of work, whatever you want to call it, and, and that is a book you have just written and or just brought out that you've been writing for some time, and it's called Countdown to Socialism, the National Democratic Revolution in South Africa since 1994. And... The book states that the National Democratic Revolution, or the NDR, which we all refer to, is is the, the key to understanding ANC rule over the past three decades. Um, yet, I'd argue that most, most, many, if not most South Africans, know nothing about it. And can we start before we look at why the book is written to cover this period and what it explains about government rule? What is the National Democratic Revolution? I mean, I get it very twitchy when dem- democracy and revolution are put together in the same title. <laughs> uh, let me try. It's a, a strategy that was developed by, by the Soviet Union, by Moscow in the 1950s, at a time when many African and Asian colonies were becoming independent. And they were c- coming to independence with primarily capitalist economies. And the Soviet Union wanted to draw them into the socialist world. So the NDR was a strategy intended to take predominantly capitalist economies to socialism and ultimately to communism. And in some instances, this could be done quite quickly, particularly where you'd had a a socialist party leading the fight for independence. But in other instances where you'd had a mix of organizations involved in that struggle, then you had to proceed more cautiously and you would implement the NDR via incremental interventions over possibly decades. And in the case of South Africa, when we achieved uh, the political transition in 1994, at that point, the Soviet Union had been disbanded three years earlier, 1991. Uh, there was a feeling, I think, broadly shared that socialism had been discredited. It wasn't possible to make rapid progress. And so the NDR in South Africa was now intended to be a 30 to 40 year strategy that would take all those decades to implement. But of course, we've now been implementing it since 1994, which is close on 30 years. So a great deal of progress has been made. We can see the results in the way that the economy and the society are struggling. But even worse interventions lie ahead. And that is why it seems so important to try and draw attention to the NDR and the risk that it poses. Um, Anthea, uh, the book covers NDR from the the point at which the NC became the government at, at the dawn of democracy in 1994. And and you said that essentially the, the program has run uninterruptedly since 1994 to date. How, what is it How have you become aware of that, and given that we know so little about its existence or its purpose? Hmm. I, I think it's, it's most South Africans, as you said, know very little about it because it's given very little attention by 
uh, the media and other commentators, academia and so on, who would normally be the ones to alert people to important developments. But actually, you can find a great deal of information about the NDR if you look at what the SACP, uh, the dominant ally in the tripartite alliance, says, what the ANC says. And particularly at their five yearly congresses, mm. you will find a recommitment to the NDR on the part of both organizations. You will get a great deal of information about what the overall strategy is. Uh, in other words, the overall goal and the tactics that are to be used in the next five year period in order to achieve that goal. So there is information available. And from this, you can see that the NDR was, was intended to proceed in two stages after 1994. And that first it would concentrate particularly in the political sphere um, in order for the ANC to consolidate its hold on power uh, and particularly through the use of cater deployment. And once that hold on power was secure, in other words, once the checks and balances on executive power had been uh, weakened, parliament role had been reduced, the judiciary's independence had been compromised, Cater deployment had brought the ANC the desire it controlled it wanted over SOEs and the media and business and other entities. Then the focus would shift to the socioeconomic sphere and we would see more interventions there. And so we have indeed, since 2012, when the second phase began, seen a, a, a great deal of focus on tightening up earlier rules. Mm. Labour legislation made very much stricter, pricing more people out of the labour market employment equity and BEE rules being tightened up in 2014. And now again, the employment equity ones and BEE are due to be tightened yet further. Uh, the increasing emphasis to undermine property rights uh, with successive expropriation bills put before Parliament. And we now have one of the most dangerous of all because it provides for nil compensation, uh, having already been adopted by the National Assembly and, and soon we fear to be adopted by the National Council of Provinces so there was the political phase, there was the socioeconomic phase, and the socioeconomic phase is it's now truly hotting up, mm. one might say, with some of the worst interventions now unfortunately coming close to being adopted and then implemented. Yeah, the sort of inf- interventions you talk about, uh, employment equity, um, affirmative action, uh, expropriation without compensation, are all the sorts of issues that both local and foreign investors look at with concern because it affect it would affect and limit their rights to their property to the work to any uh, employment they they may create would be essentially uh, circumscribed by the laws that that, th- that threaten the, the ownership of what they spend their money on but also the, the, what's concerning is that the this sees the ANC digging deeper into the lives of South Africans, and yet its rule of the last 30 years has been spectacularly incompetent and inadequate, and yet it now seeks to make sure that everything comes within its ambit and it is responsible for everything. And, and I mean, the, the thought of the national health insurance uh, coming into, into, into effect is just terrifying because there's no sense that the ANC either – can manage any of this properly or has the well-being of, of ordinary South Africans in mind? Uh, absolutely. I mean, uh, socialist states are never efficient. If you think from the Soviet Union, Cuba, Zimbabwe and, and Venezuela, there's never a model of, of efficiency in, in those countries. And the ruling elites are completely indifferent to that and to how much suffering they cause. Mm. 
what they're trying to achieve here in South Africa is to de-link people from the capitalist economy mm-hmm. so that they entirely depend on the state for all their core needs. Education, so in time there'll be no private schooling. Healthcare, so that this private healthcare is not to be bought under state control. Um, and, and may not survive the process because what fees can be charged will be decided by the NHI fund and may not be enough for sustainability. That in every sphere, including employment, it is the state that in, in the end must provide and the private sector must be barred from doing so. Um, and then you will have a, a level of power vested in the state, which is quite difficult to imagine in the situation in which we are now in which the state is the landlord, the state is the employer, the state is the provider of all education, the provider of all health care, the aim is also the provider of all transport, the provider of all jobs. So, you know, it, it would give the state a level of, of power and the capacity to siphon off from the resources of society for the benefit of the elite to a quite extraordinary extent. And that's the great appeal of the socialist model. It gives those at the very top enormous power and enormous wealth. And they do it all by claiming to be working for the benefit of the poor. Uh, It really is a sort of bait and switch policy. You talk about the plight of the poor, you use it to attain a great deal of power and wealth for those at the very top, while the poor suffer more and more. No, it's quite extraordinary in the... Particularly now in the context of the fact that BE, cadre deployment, um, the lack of competence, the lack of knowledge, the lack of understanding of what is needed in order to run things effectively have been exposed in, in, in hugely and, 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 very, and very publicly. We, we all know what an appalling manager of, uh, of government the ANC is. What 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 interests me is that there's tended to be, and I've not been one of those who, who believed it, you know, there's been a lot of debate and discussion about the um, RET faction within the ANC and the Cyril Ramaphosa faction, and it's the Cyril Ramaphosa faction that's keeping us on the straight and narrow and preventing you know, such destruction. But my feeling is that it, and I think they've now said it, that it's there's no ideological difference between the two factions it's just it's two factions jockeying for power it the 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 the, the core ideology that is the ndr is not up for debate it's absolutely agreed at all levels in the anc i think that's absolutely true particularly of course within the national executive committee of the anc in other words the leadership mm. structure um, I think most of the people who vote for the ANC have very little idea about the NDR or where their leadership plans to take them. But within the leadership, there is no division over ideology. Mm. And this was stated in so many words by Cyril Ramaphosa last year mm. at the ANC's Sixth National Policy Conference, where he said, so many words, there is no division on ideology or policy within the ANC. The divisions are all about access to power, and the, 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 the economic gains that go with that. And Ramaphosa himself has also, despite the, the way in which he's been hyped as a moderate, made it very clear that he's committed to the NDR um, in addressing the, the SACP's 15th Congress also last year. 
he said that the ANC would do all in its power to uh, protect and advance the NDR, which is a joint program of the ANC and the SACP, and the reason for the existence of our alliance. So he very clearly endorsed the NDR, not as something that the SACP believes in and the ANC might try to resist, but as something that they are both engaged in implementing. I mean, one of the things I've not been from the word go a fan of uh, Sir Ramaphosa for exactly this reason is he has managed to get away with being popular with the business sector and a lot of hopeful people that he will bring reform. Where there are problems, where things are not working, he will bring reform. But he, he can't possibly have really meant that because the reform – or certainly not meant it as we understood it. The reform we understand is freeing up the economy, make, allowing things to be more competitive, government getting out of the way and letting the private sector um, function more op- optimally because it, it knows how to do things, it knows how to invest, it knows how to create business and employ. So there's a whole sort of very smoothly saying to business sector, there are reforms, there are reforms, there are reforms. Is this sort of dissembling a feature of, 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 of the sort of, of the socialist process? Absolutely. Um, and propaganda is always used. Um, hiding the truth is an important part of being able to, to make progress. Uh, and in the case of Sir Ramaphosa, I think it's quite clear that the SAP decided that Jacob Zuma had become a liability mm. because of the state capture saga had come out. His, his involvement in corruption was now too evident. And so though he had been put in after Mbeki on the promise that, that he would speed up NDR implementation, and he did some things to achieve that at the beginning, by 2017 he was a liability. And so the focus and the propaganda shifted to, to positing Cyril Ramaphosa as the man who could save South Africa, as a pragmatic businessman uh, who was going to introduce new dawn reforms. Um, and I think there was an assumption that these would be business-friendly reforms, um, whereas, in fact, the, the new dawn terminology comes from Franklin Roosevelt, who was mm-hmm. quite statist in many of the interventions that he introduced in the U.S. But certainly Ramaphosa um, has been the most successful, I would say, radical economic transformation president, if one wants to use that terminology, mm. that we've ever had, because so many damaging NDR interventions have been enacted during his time as president. Um, and among the most important is the Competition Amendment Act, which is going to be extremely destructive in many ways to business. Um, also, obviously, the National Minimum Wage Act, mm. where the minimum wages set have, have roared up very quickly and the outcome, as Ramaphosa knows, is that employers incur a loss when they take on inexperienced people at these salaries, and so they don't want to employ them. Mm. And the inexperienced youth are being priced out of the labor market. He's also managed to get the Employment Equity Act through Parliament, and it, soon the Minister of Employment and Labor will be able to set binding racial targets for business, similar to those that have already been set in the private, in the public sector with, with a really very damaging results because unfortunately we still have a major skills shortage in the country. Education has been so bad for so many years that that we haven't overcome the skills deficit and yet if we have to employ according to demographic representativity we will cut out most of the people who do have skills and give senior posts to people who simply lack the experience and the competence to do them properly. 
And the public service might survive that because it has tax revenues to fall back on. The private sector can't because it has to be competitive, mm. both domestically and in, in the outside world, so as not to lose market share to, to companies abroad. Mm. It can't afford that. And yet that is one of the most important aims that, that Cyril Ramaphosa has achieved. Mm. And on the property rights sphere, we came very close to introducing a constitutional amendment allowing for null compensation. And we're now even closer to having the expropriation bill with similar wording and, and just as much potential damage to the economy being adopted by Parliament. It's funny, I, it struck me when when the a lot was made of the amendment and people got very anxious and excited about it, and then it, it didn't go through. And I thought, well, you know, the ANC's quite canny the amend if they don't if they don't let the amendment go through then they are seen to have sort of seen sense and back down or whatever and they would simply find another route because this is too crucial to their to their plan of action to do it any other way precisely <laughs> i think that that was probably the main reasons why in the end they didn't go mm. forward mm. um because the, the EWC goal hasn't changed in any way, and Ramaphosa himself made that very plain uh, soon after the constitutional bill had, had uh, failed. He said the EWC goal remains, and since we can't achieve it through amending the constitution, uh, we're now going to do it by the expropriation bill, the land court bill, which is also a very dreadful measure, mm. also adopted by parliament already, because I think a number of people have in their minds that if they are faced with expropriation by the state, at least they can rely on the courts to make sure that they get a just and equitable compensation and that the process is relatively fair. But the ordinary courts are not going to be able to deal with land expropriation cases. These will go to the new land court, um, which will have uh, the capacity to uh, to really ignore the ordinary rules of evidence, uh, to dispense with some of the rules of procedure if it decides they're too burdensome hmm. and critically to allow two lay assessors to overrule a single presiding judge on all questions of fact. And there's a risk that the amount of compensation to be paid could be tagged as a question of fact to be decided by lay assessors who could well be land activists. Hmm. Uh, they don't have to have independence. They don't have to have a knowledge of the law. Funnily enough, I think uh, what, you've, what you've just described regarding the land court is the it's almost like it, it explains it, it's some, it's symptomatic of every other problematic policy that the the ANC has or intends to Im, implement. It's 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 wrong in every sense. It, it contravenes so much about about the rule of law, which is con, which is um, uh, crucial. It, it it's it's just got that entire aura of the of the ANC saying, "Damn it, we're gonna we're gonna go our own way." Um, Andy, I'd like to ask you just after the after the break, I'd like to just t- chat very briefly about the the People's War. Um, it does go back before the in for, before this book uh, to a previous book, but I think it helps to give some idea of where the ANC how how the ANC went about achieving the position it has in. in South African society. Hashtag you don't have to be Jewish. And yeah, as I recall, you, you published a book in 2009 on the People's War, which generally the progressive media, uh, was very unhappy about and, uh, sought in normal, normal, in, in considerable ways to debunk. And, uh, I'm not sure they did it successfully, but they were certainly, uh, 
very vocal and, and damning. Can you just give us an idea of what the People's War was and why it was so important to the rise of the ANC in government? Sure. And in fact, I, I do deal very briefly with the People's War in this new book as well. The focus is, of course, mostly on the NDR since 1994. But it's absolutely vital, I thought, for more people to have an understanding of how the ANC got to power. And uh, South Africans have been fed so many struggle myths mm. um, about the ANC uh, and, and its supposedly very limited program of violence, mostly bomb attacks, which sometimes inadvertently targeted civilians, that they don't have an understanding of just how ruthless the organization is. And it's that ruthlessness which underpins the NDR too. It mm-hmm. leads to a callousness about the welfare of, of ordinary South Africans. So the ruthlessness of the People's War was on show time and time again because it was a strategy which the ANC learned primarily uh, from a visit to communists, as it was then Vietnam in 1978, um, where they learned from the the most important strategist of all, uh, Zap. General Zap, who was the, the leader of the People's War in Vietnam, how you combine political and military struggles. The political struggles are things that people may recall, a whole number of boycott campaigns, school boycotts, rent boycotts, uh, mass demonstrations, economic sanctions, um, and the military struggle, which was given very little attention, sometimes involved bomb blasts, but what it much more involved was the use of terror, such as the necklace execution, in order to bring people into line, to make sure that they did participate in the school boycotts and the demonstrations and the stairways, which many of them, much as they disliked apartheid, didn't want to take part in. If you stayed away from work, you put income and job at risk. So people were reluctant to do so until they saw that they could be necklaced if they didn't. And in the end, a stairway call could be enforced by an activist walking up and down a taxi rank line, just holding up a box of matches which became a recognized symbol of the necklace and was terrifying to the people who who didn't want to be in the way of that kind of appalling death. And then the other part of the military program was very much against the ANC's black rivals. When the Soweto revolt happened, the ANC was forced to acknowledge, as was the Soviet Union, its main backer, that the ANC had pretty much lost support inside the country. Mm, The black consciousness organizations had been the ones behind the the, the outbreak of the Soweto revolt. They'd been the ones who mobilized black youth. Uh, The Encarta was an increasingly important actor, and it believed absolutely that liberation could be achieved by nonviolent means, because Mm -hmm. they hadn't been adequately tried, and by breaking the grand apartheid strategy to give independence to all the homelands. So by refusing independence for KwaZulu, Encarta broke that strategy Mm. and meant the government kept having to look for an alternative. Encarta, incredibly important. They had 300,000 members by 1979, which was three times more than, than the ANC had had at the height of its popularity. And when the People's War began in 1984, Encarta had close on a million members. It was an empowerful and a very important rival that might have been the new government if it hadn't been weakened. So it was weakened, first of all, by killing in Carter office bearers and leaders and many IFP supporters. And and in the end, it was 400 IFP leaders who were killed. And I don't know, it's impossible to tell just how many thousands of, of its members and supporters who died as well. And often this was in premeditated hits. Mm. This wasn't in the heat of battle. And Encarta, of course, fought back, sometimes very uh, 
openly and very viciously. Mm. And increasingly, it was those open revenge attacks which were condemned and which became to see indicative of the entire uh, reason for for violence mm. at that period. But what the underlying reason was, was the People's War and the ANC's determination to eliminate its black rivals before the first all-race election. So as despite its its own limited support in the country, it could be confident of, of prevailing in that election. Mm. So this was what the People's War involved, that the combination of terror and targeted attacks on political rivals and also on the police. I think people don't realize to what extent the police also came under attack. The thousand killings in the period from 1990 to 1994 uh, and 1,700 police officers injured in the first six months of 1993 alone when the People's War was at a particularly intense point. And what the ANC was doing in the early 1990s was to continue with the People's War and use it to put pressure on the negotiations mm. process. As the violence intensified, the negotiators became increasingly desperate to find a solution that would uh, bring an end to the violence. Mm. And so it enabled the ANC to gain what Joe Slova called a famous victory in Mm. the negotiations, with the ANC scoring 16 out of 16 through its strategic objectives. But it had gained that degree of influence through a combination of propaganda, terror, and the elimination of rivals. Mm. No, and, and it, it also completely, contra- completely contradicts the frequent um, comment that's made that the ANC was a victim of the negotiations and, uh, you know, was subject to the machinations of white parties, etc., etc. Um, the last issue I'd just like to raise, and this is probably speculative more than anything, is next year's election... What happens, what is likely, what do you think is likely to happen in the, in the event that the opposition becomes the ruling coalition? Mm. Uh, and the ANC is not part of the ruling coalition, um, much as it's uh-huh. sort of been mentioned. What, what, what happens then? What do you, what is the ANC likely to do? Because that's, you know, it's not in the power position to advance the NDR. Mm. Well, I I think the ANC will obviously be deeply dismayed. So what is absolutely vital is that there should be a decisive victory by the opposition parties Mm. in the coalition. And and that is possible because the the figures from the 2019 election show that 10 million people voted for the ANC and 18 million eligible voters stayed away. Yeah. So even if half of those eligible voters were to, to vote instead for the for the coalition, the opposition coalition, you could have a decisive victory. Mm. The more the t- decisive it is, the less chance the ANC has of trying to white ant it and mm. undermine it and overturn it. Um, and in the, the five years that the opposition thus gains, it will be absolutely vital to embark on reforms that roll back these NDR interventions. Mm. And with enough support in the country, it will be possible to do that. Uh, the media, many of whom seem to have been very ANC-oriented and left-leaning for quite a period, uh, maybe may not make it easy to achieve the reforms that we so badly need. But hopefully, if there is a groundswell of resistance and rejection of the route that the ANC has been taking the country down, then it will be much easier to get the case for the alternative views uh, well publicized and well understood by the electorate mm. so that the opposition can make real progress in its five years and then win again.
Well, as we say at Chayafim, um, from your lips to God's ears, and Anthea, thank you very much for that comprehensive uh, discussion on in many ways, an organization, despite its its prominence, is, is is to the people of South Africa somewhat opaque. Thank you so much.